Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of In With The Old in 2024. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. My name is Dr. Tim Howe, and I have the distinct privilege tonight to welcome Dr. J. Daniel Hayes to In With The Old. Uh, Dr. Hayes is the brilliant mind behind several impactful books, including The Message of the Prophets, Grasping God's Word, God's Relational Presence, and The Cohesive Center, uh, the Cohesive Center of Biblical Theology. Uh, Dr. Hayes serves as Senior Professor of Old Testament at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Dr. Hayes previously served for nearly three decades as the Dean of the Pruitt School of Christian Studies and Professor of Biblical Studies at Watchtop Baptist University. Dr. Hayes, thank you for joining me tonight, and welcome to In With the Old. It's good to be with you, Tim. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Excellent. I am too. And uh, the discussion tonight is uh, based on Dr. Hayes's work from Every People and Nation of Biblical Theology of Race. So we've got a lot of things uh, from that work that I'm excited to get into. But Dr. Hayes, the first question we like to ask every person we interview is this. What personally drew you to the Old Testament and how has your journey, your personal journey, influenced your work in the field? Well, thanks, Tim. Yeah, I, uh, you know, my dad was a chaplain and he had a great class he taught one time in the chapel on the prophets. And so I kind of got interested in that even as a kid, that there were some interesting thing in the prophets, even though I didn't quite understand them real yeah. well. And then in seminary, I really got into Hebrew. Uh, suddenly I just, you know, <laughs> I liked Greek too, and I liked the New Testament, you know. But I really enjoyed the uh, Hebrew classes and uh, had kind of an affinity with it. Uh, and then we went as missionaries to Ethiopia. And so there we're studying Amharic. It's a Semitic language. It's related to Hebrew. So mm. I'm kind of getting that reinforced and seeing some similarities. And in Ethiopia, they preach from the Old Testament all the time. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I heard more sermons from Chronicles in my five years in Ethiopia than I've for the rest of my life, you know, how often do you hear sermon from Chronicles, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and so I, you know, was again excited. So when I came back to the U.S. and started Ph.D. studies, when I had to decide which field to major in, you know, I was back and forth, but I really liked the Old Testament. And I realized, you know, it's a big field. The, the, the Old Testament's a lot bigger than the New Testament, but there's mm -hmm. fewer people uh, studying it. <laughs> And so, I mean, you know, and the, come on, in New Testament, that's you, some verses in Romans, they've been beat to death, you know, and people have studied. But in the Old Testament, you have large stretches of text and large areas where there's not a lot of good academic work and not a lot of good academic work that can study that and present it in relevant, understandable ways to the, you know, to the church. And so that's why I got excited about that. And I still love the New Testament, of course, you know. Uh, and I go back and forth from both, but I am I am privileged and blessed to have spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. Yeah, excellent. Well, again, and, th and that's what we're about in this podcast is is trying to help Christians rediscover the Old Testament, uh, because for many it, it seems foreign, it seems irrelevant, it seems outdated. Uh, but of course, we don't believe that's true. And uh, we, I want to move to your work from every people and nation. And this is a biblical theology of race. You cover the Old Testament as well as the New. Uh, but what struck me was uh, how much good work you did in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to talk about this as we go. But uh, this this work came out in 2003. You've published many works since then. So maybe could you tell us a story? Go in a time machine for us. And uh, can you tell us a little bit of of the story behind the writing of this book, what prompted it, and uh, and what prompted it at that time in your career? Yeah, in the in the late '90s, then I was here teaching at Washita, and we had a, an alumni pastor, an African American pastor named Dwight McKissick. Mm -hmm. uh, Dwight's pastor is a large, successful church in in, uh, in the Dallas Fort Worth area now, but but he's from mm -hmm. Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And uh, Dwight had uh, just published a book about race, a small book, uh, and we had him on campus. And so he was speaking in chapel on this topic. <laughs> and uh, and so, you know, he's a, he's a good scholar. He's a fantastic pastor. He's a great guy. He's a friend of mine. But he had kind of misused the, the term Ethiopia in the Bible. And I had just gotten back, you know, from Ethiopia. So afterwards, I said, uh, Dwight, you know, you 
you know, you're kind of misusing the term Ethiopia. Uh, it doesn't refer in the Bible, not to modern Ethiopia, but to ancient Sudan uh, region. And he said, well, hey, we're having a conference in Arlington, Texas in a few months. Why don't you come and present a paper on uh, the, you know, the true use of Ethiopia, the Kushites is, is, is what the term is in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. And I said, sure. And I envisioned at the time a quick trip to the library and spend a few afternoons gathering all the information there was about the Kushites, putting it together in a paper and that it wouldn't take long. And I was just stunned, you know, when I got to the library and after, you know, a couple of weeks and just there's tremendous amount of material. I was stunned at how much the Kushites show up in the Bible, you know, 54 times. And there's a lot of background material about them. We know all kinds of historical things about them, and they're mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And nobody was bringing that information into biblical studies or into the church. Mm-hmm. The commentaries weren't doing it. Systematics people weren't doing it. And so mm-hmm. so at that time, I thought, wow, this is, you know, and I began to also ponder on the question, why mm-hmm. uh, didn't this stuff, uh, why do we have more coverage on the Hittites? which are only mentioned a few times and yet we have, everybody knows who the Hittites are and there's all this study, but the Kushites don't even make it on the map. You know, our biblical mm-hmm. maps in the back don't even go down that far in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so, so anyway, so at that point I felt like, wow, there's a, there's a book to be written here to try to, you know, bring all this material together. And then mm-hmm. uh, fortunately about that same time, this book series, the new studies in biblical theology was, producing several volumes. And so I contacted them and uh, Dia Carson said, fine, this would be, this would be a good addition. So, so that's how the, that's kind of how the book came about. I got challenged to do an article and then from there I realized, wow, there's just a lot of material here that, 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 that needs to be shared. Excellent. Well, I, I, I'm sure my impression of it is the impression of many others that as I, as I, devoured the work, uh, there was so much in it that I was totally unaware of. And, uh, and so there was a, a great collection of information, a synthesis of information, but also you, you really are able to tell a story and weave it in uh, even to, to how we think about race today. And so I, I want to talk about the Kushites here in just a minute, but one of the most important uh, topics that you covered in the work, in, in my view at least, is your treatment of the curse of Ham. And uh, for some of our viewers and listeners, they may not be familiar with this. For others, they may be very familiar. Uh, The curse of Ham is something that has been uh, misused, and I'm quoting from you here. You say it's one of the most serious and most damaging misinterpretations of Scripture, in quote, uh, in terms of of, uh, abusing the curse of Ham to downplay, or even worse, uh, the significance of the Kushites or black Africans in the scriptures, but continuing on into even the history of the United States. So could you maybe walk us through what is this so-called curse of Ham? And can you explain to our audience how it has been misunderstood and how it's been misused? Yeah, sure, Tim. You know, uh, after the flood, okay, we're in Genesis 6 to 9, all right, so Mm-hmm. After the flood, and you have this real peculiar story, you know, Mo, uh, Noah gets <laughs> drunk and he's in his tent and he's naked and his, he has three sons, uh, mm-hmm. Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Mm-hmm. And Ham sees him naked and runs, tells his brother, and his brothers come and cover him up without looking at him. Mm-hmm. But apparently, and there's cultural things going on here, and uh, and I'm not sure we totally understand all that's going on in the text, but... Whatever Ham did, it was it was wrong, culturally wrong. Mm-hmm. So, but the text stresses that uh, Ham's the father of Canaan, and so so Noah levels a curse on on Ham, but he doesn't say cursed be Ham. He says cursed be Canaan, mm-hmm. who's the son of Ham. Uh, and then later on, he says uh, may Canaan then be the you know be the slave uh, of Shem. Mm-hmm. And so what 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 people did and then they are uh, they and, 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 and be the slave of Japheth and make Canaan be the slave of Japheth uh, mm-hmm. in verse 27. And so what happened was, uh, especially coming into colonial America, is they were interpreting this that Ham represents the black people of uh, of, of black Africa 
and that this text says that Ham would be the slave of Japheth, and mm -hmm. that Japheth represents the white races and the white people. So mm -hmm. they were arguing that the enslavement of black people is not only okay, it's predicted, it's a prophecy, it's a fulfillment mm -hmm. of what the Bible says. So it was proper and correct for white people to enslave black Africa and to continue uh, to do that. So this was preached in, you know, in colonial America and, and beyond uh, uh, to defend uh, the institution of slavery and even into the Civil War and beyond. And unfortunately, it just has hung around for a long time, even into the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was still being propagated and people were reprinting older commentaries on Genesis and they were saying, that's what the meaning of this of this is. And so even, you know, people certainly my age, and I would say even the generation, one generation younger than me, a lot of them were still hearing this in churches. Mm -hmm. And so it's a horrific uh, misinterpretation uh, of the entire text. You know, there's, there's no indication, no proof whatsoever that the name Ham represents, means black or represents all of the black, uh, the black peoples, uh, uh, and the idea that when the one who gets cursed here is Canaan, and mm -hmm. of course that's the historical enemies of of Israel. That's where this text is going. That's the trajectory mm -hmm. is, is saying that Israel is going to ultimately subdue the Canaanites, uh, and uh, and of course that's that's what happens. And so, so there is again, there's no evidence whatsoever exegetically or that that that's what this text is at all about. That it has anything to do with race. Mm -hmm. uh, the other interesting thing is the curses on Canaan and ethnically. When you deal about ethnicity, the Canaanites are very close to the Hebrews. Mm -hmm. uh, they speak similar language, they have similar customs. Uh, and so the curses certainly doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. The, the curses on those people that are similar to them. And it's just God saying that ultimately the Israelites will displace those Canaanites. So it's got nothing to do with race, although it was used repeatedly uh, as the defense for slavery, uh, especially in America uh, here. And so that's that's the tragedy of that misuse of that text. Yeah, and, and Dr. Hayes, I think as we think about the, the course of American history, it's it's easy to think of, of something like uh, desegregation or, or even the antebellum South or the Civil War as somehow this ancient history that has no impact on today. But as you mentioned, uh, and I, I mentioned this to you before we recorded, even pastorally, I've heard people talk about the curse of Ham uh, as, as something that they were taught even in their Christian upbringing. And so uh, I, I very much appreciate your your very forward treatment that this really is a, a, a gross misunderstanding of the text. And, uh, and if you're okay with this, I want to skip ahead a little bit because the curse of Ham uh, in Genesis 9, of course, bleeds into Genesis 10 with the table of nations. And so a lot of people will say, well, the descendants of Ham primarily refers to the African nations based on Genesis chapter 10. Could you maybe briefly walk through why that's also a misunderstanding in terms of the table of nations in Genesis 10, uh, that it's not quite as simple as saying, well, the descendants of Ham uh, populated Africa, and so the curse of Ham extends to them. Uh, can you maybe just walk through Genesis chapter 10 and why uh, that text is often misunderstood as well? Yeah, Genesis 10, of course, is 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 complicated. Uh, it's set up like a genealogy. Mm -hmm. And so we immediately assume that these are all biological uh, relationships and they're all people. This people beget that people. I mean, this person beget that person. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to view it uh, in this way. Uh, but clearly, uh, in, 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 in Genesis 10, the, the names that are mentioned, some of them are people, but some of them are cities, and some of them are nations. Uh, and so the way that the genealogy is working, and we find this true of other ancient genealogies, is that sometimes genealogies are done kinship relationships. How do these groups, but sometimes they're political 
relationships as well, our territorial relationships as well. Mm-hmm. And so when they list out the uh, the uh, the sons of uh, the sons of Ham here in chapter ten, say look at verse six, mm-hmm. the sons of Ham. So they mention Cush. Okay, well that's Black Africa there, but Egypt is not, uh, and Put, which is probably Libya, uh, is not in. Canaan certainly is a, I mean, this is not an ethnic grouping. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are widely different ethnicities that are mentioned in in verse 6. And so this is not any kind of uh, ethnological, you know, grouping there. It's a a geopolitical uh, uh, arrangement at the time Mm -hmm. throughout the patriarchal period and even into the rest of the Pentateuch, the time of Moses and beyond. These four areas were all under Egyptian control and were geopolitically aligned. So they're kind of talking about areas and regions that are united various ways. Sometimes it's linguistically, sometimes it's, you know, but but sometimes it's broader than that. So Genesis 10 is not set up like a a biological uh, descendant map to where they would say, that all of the sons of Ham is Black Africa. That's just a misreading of the way that uh, that the uh, that that Genesis ten is presenting the the genealogy, and it really it's got nothing to do with ethnicity when you look at the way the peoples are grouped are grouped together there uh, as far as how things are put uh, into Genesis ten. Yeah, well, thank you for that explanation. And again, uh, I, I imagine that for some of our listeners, this is all kind of brand new, and maybe they've never heard of the Curse of Ham or the Table of Nations or anything like that. Uh, but of course, the reason we're talking about it is because these are the very artifacts and texts that have been used and misused in the past to to argue that uh, by nature or even by the curse of God, that Europeans are superior to black Africans or that other ethnicities are superior because, according to certain views, the table of nation proves that black, black Africa are the descendants of Ham, which Noah cursed. And, uh, and so I, I, I just want to say clearly, it's difficult to overstate the impact that the misuse of these texts has had. Uh, and so that's why we, we wanted to uh, bring it up in this interview. Um, maybe it would be helpful, Dr. Hayes, uh, of course, feel free to say anything else you'd like to about that, but could you walk us through, you mentioned, uh, at the very beginning that the Cushites really play an important role in both the old Testament and the new, uh, there's some terminology changes that happen over time as we go from the old, the new Testament. And I'm sure you can explain that. Uh, but can you just help us to understand who are the Cushites? Uh, what is their role in the Old Testament scriptures? Why are they significant? Sure, thanks, Tim. Yeah, first of all, the the, the Hebrew word Cush uh, or Cushites, which is what they call these people, uh, the word shows up in the Old Testament fifty-four times, mm-hmm. and so I was just stunned uh, that it is a major uh, ethnic group that's mentioned uh, regularly and repeatedly. And so it is clearly an important group of people in the Old Testament. This is not something that's added later or in modern times or whatever, this is at the heart. And so the, what you have is, you know, most of the people know where Egypt is, okay? And uh, along the Nile River, as you go south of Egypt, uh, you move into Northern Sudan uh, modern Sudan now, and along that now river, the river makes a funny little S shape, and for a while it flows in the wrong direction. Okay, it shifts, flows north for a while, and goes the wrong direction. Normally, it's flowing, you know, towards the Mediterranean. It's flowing north, but in that S loop right there, there was an identifiable kingdom of uh, of Black Africans are in this kingdom. Uh, and it's an identifiable entity from about 2000 BC, at least, up until about 400 AD. Uh, and uh, and the name given to that region is is Cush. The Hebrews will call them that. The Assyrians will call them that. Uh, and so now what's happened is the confusing thing is that uh, modern uh, historiographers uh, sometimes will call this area Nubia. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that in history books that they'll call them the Nubians. And then later on, the Greeks 
called everything south of Egypt, they called Ethiopia. Uh, and so all black Africans, they referred to with the term Ethiopia, even though most of their contact were with these Kushites. Mm -hmm. Kushites were a major geopolitical force in the ancient world. And so people had constant contact uh, with them throughout, throughout the world. So most of the Greek references to Ethiopians does refer to these Kushites. But this is not modern Ethiopia. Modern Ethiopia is to the east of, of this region of Kush. So the Kushites were a, a large power and a geopolitical power. The Egyptians were fighting with them, trying to subdue them because they had major gold mines. And so for much of the, you know, the, the second millennium BC, the, the, the Egypt had control uh, over Kush and were uh, extracting gold from the mines. But there was a period, uh, you know, slightly earlier than, say, the prophet Isaiah, where mm -hmm. the uh, where the Kushites overrun Egypt and they had a, uh, a Kushite became one of the pharaohs, Terharka. They were ruling Egypt. Uh, at about the time that the Assyrians are now invading uh, Israel and putting pressure on Judah. And uh, this we see this in the Old Testament time of Isaiah and recorded, you know, in, in Kings as well. And so, so anyway, the, uh, so a couple of other examples where they show up uh, when, when earlier, when, when Moses is leading the Israelites uh, out of Egypt, uh, and uh, they're heading towards the promised land in Numbers. Uh, in Numbers 12, it says that Moses married a Cushite woman, uh, and they, they stress their nationality. They mention it twice in, in that passage. And then, you know, interestingly, it will be, we may discuss this a little more detail later, but so I'll just pass on that. So Moses marries, you know, one of these people. It's probably one of this mixed multitude that Exodus 12 mentions that comes out with the children of Israel. So, so Moses marries a Cushite, so that's an instant. There's a Cushite uh, soldier in David's army who's mentioned in, 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 in Samuel, who uh, is, a, is, a, is a messenger, you know, carrying a message of the army. So he has a fairly important role. And a very important Cushite shows up in the book of, uh, of Jeremiah. Uh, when Jeremiah gets arrested and thrown down in this pit uh, for, you know, proclaiming the truth, you know, that everybody needed to repent, uh, he's about to die. And it says that uh, a man named Abed Malik, who was a Cushite, uh, appears and uh, uh, approaches the king and convinces the king to, uh, to release him. And mm -hmm. so... It's a lot of interesting stuff on Ebed Malik. Some people, older commentaries, said he's naturally a slave. And that kind of shows their uh, uh, bias and, and misunderstanding. If we read the text carefully and the context carefully, uh, he's probably some kind of high-ranking official mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in, in, in the court. But he's still pretty bold at, at approaching uh King Zedekiah. But what happens in the story is the king gives in and Jeremiah is released. And then God proclaims that Ebed Malik will likewise be delivered and saved because he trusted in God. So mm -hmm. Ebed Malik has saved the Cushite at a time when all of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians and carried off into exile. So he's one of the few mm -hmm. people who are delivered, uh, the, part of this small remnant that's delivered. And I think at that point, he becomes a symbol of, of the Gentiles, the inclusion. The Gentiles are going to be added mm -hmm. into deliverance. And we have this black African, Ebed Melek, who plays that role. Uh, it's very similar when we get over into the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. uh, in Acts chapter 8, when, uh, when things are going bad in Jerusalem and people are turning against the new Christian movement and Stephen gets executed and church is persecuted and they scatter then uh, we have this wonderful story of Philip encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and here mm -hmm. in Greek, once the Greek is being translated, then Ethiopian, it's perhaps an okay term to use, even though it's still not a reference to modern Ethiopia. This guy's clearly from the kingdom of Cush. And we know that he mentions the queen, uh, Luke mentions mm -hmm. this in Acts, uh, Kandake, 
the queen, we have historical records of this queen in, uh, in Kush, who she's the one they stopped the Romans from expanding down into that region. She had a treaty with the Romans. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have that from, from Roman history. So we know he's from the same place as Ebed Malik was, uh, where these were Kush is there in northern Sudan. Uh, and so what is similar, this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, you know, Philip leads him to the Lord, you know, rides along, shares Isaiah from him in the chariot, and they stop, he baptizes him. And it's kind of similar to the Ebed Malik story in that uh, he's the first mm -hmm. uh, the Gentile in Acts. Uh, I mean, here's the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the yeah. uttermost parts of the earth. Well, here he is, you know. Uh, he's from he's from way down south of Egypt in Cush. And so you have him as a black African really serving this role of, of representing the Gentile inclusion uh, that happens there in Acts. So, yeah. so anyway, so those are some main central stories. You know, these are not backwater stories, Moses and David and Jeremiah and, and mm -hmm. Acts. And so they're, they're important stories. And we see that the Cushites are included throughout throughout scripture, the salvation coming to the black Africans is not something that had to wait till the 19th century <laughs> and missionaries to, to bring, but they're there from the beginning. Uh, and we see God seems to be intentional, you know, about that and to include those and even use them as a paradigm or a picture of what the Gentile inclusion looks like. So that's the Cushites. That's a long answer, but there's a lot yeah. of them. Okay, they show up all the time in the Old Testament. Sometimes it gets translated with different terms, as I mentioned. Sometimes our translations will call them Nubians. Sometimes they'll call them Ethiopians. Sometimes they'll call them Cushites. Sometimes mm -hmm. they go back and forth, even within the same work. The very fact that our translators are so inconsistent with it, to me, is a little bit revealing that they're not paying attention and they just haven't done enough research to realize exactly who this is. Yeah, well, and, and I think the number of instances that you cite, and that wasn't comprehensive, as you said, there's 54 different instances. Uh, I think that that proves the point that the Cushites are all over the place in the Old Testament. And yet, for most people, uh, in our imagination of the Old Testament culture, uh, we don't really have a category for them, which is, you know, a shame because that that shows that that we've misunderstood the actual social Malayu of the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, the Kushites were involved in, in basically every major section of scripture. And, uh, and, and I love uh, your treatment of Evan Melek in the book uh, because he, in a sense, serves as a foil to the Israelites. He's one who trusts in the covenant God of Israel even more than the people of Israel at that time. And God commends him and, and obviously saves him. So um, it, I want to I continue on this vein. And you mentioned uh, the Kushite woman that Moses married. One, one of the things that you talk about throughout the book is that the Bible in various places and in various ways really uh, speaks directly to the legitimacy of interracial marriage. So could you walk us through some biblical examples of interracial marriage? You've obviously given us one uh, in Moses's wife, uh, but could you also flesh out your argument as to why that seems to be a salient point that was particularly in view for the biblical writers? Yeah, Tim, this is in Numbers 12, okay? So if you folks mm -hmm. want to follow up on this and mm -hmm. read this as well. So, the, so the, you know, Moses has led the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt. And in Exodus 12, they mentioned that there's a mixed multitude of other peoples that come out with them. So it's not just Hebrews. They come mm -hmm. out so there's other people with them. Uh, and then, uh, and you know, earlier in Exodus, you know, Moses had uh, married a Midianite. Uh, woman, and so, uh, so there is that in Exodus. But here in Numbers, uh, Numbers twelve, they're going to say that Moses then marries a Cushite woman, and they're going to mention this that she is a Cushite several times. Uh, mm -hmm. Here, she's probably one of this mixed multitude that came out. The Cushites, there were a lot of Cushites in Egyptian society at this time. They're just south of Egypt. They're they're in lots of different occupations, and so. Mm -hmm. To meet a Cushite in the uh, uh, while you're in Egypt, or it's, it's not at all an unusual type of thing. And uh, Dr. Hayes, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but could you briefly just explain for those who don't understand the term mixed multitude? Could you briefly explain that before you go on? 
Yeah, back back in Exodus, when they're when the the Israelites are leaving in Exodus twelve, and so you have all of the sons of Israel. Okay, mm-hmm. and the text mentioned a mixed multitude also went with them, mm-hmm. and that phrase "mixed multitude" just means a lot of other nationalities, mm-hmm. uh, and so in that group were probably some Egyptians, folks from Libya, some other folks from different parts of the uh, uh, of the of Mesopotamia as well who had likewise either migrated down in there or were into Egypt uh, or were foreigners in Egypt. And Mm -hmm. so a whole bunch of different kinds of people came out with them. And Exodus stresses that uh, Mm -hmm. and lets us see that there's a certain multi-ethnic composition of even Israel when it when it first comes out of Egypt and it's being formed into the into the nation of Israel. So Mm -hmm. she's probably part of that, uh, whether Moses knew her. Uh, while he was in uh, Exodus, uh, while he was in Egypt, or not, we don't we don't know. But but he marries this Cushite woman, and uh, some some commentators have tried to argue that this is the same as the Midianite woman he marries mm-hmm. back in in, uh, in 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 Exodus uh, too. But uh, but it's un- there's no way. I mean, the the terminology is completely different. As I pointed out, Cushite is used consistently. We know who the Cushites are. There's no confusion. Uh, and to try to somehow change them to, to be the Midianites is, uh, is is some semantic gymnastics, you know. And so mm-hmm. so clearly he marries a he marries a woman from Cush. And again, to if this is the second wife, that's not all that unusual in the ancient world. And David has seven wives, you know, they're soldiers for leaders. Uh, and uh, and so, but what happens here is that uh, Miriam and Aaron oppose it. His mm-hmm. brother and sister uh, oppose it. And and God deals fairly harshly with them. He speaks to them, mm-hmm. uh, defends Moses and his marriage, uh, and uh, speaks to them very harshly. And, and Moses even has to intervene. Mm-hmm. Uh, with some of the punishment that just, uh, that Miriam is stricken with, so you see you see God very much in approval of mm-hmm. Moses and his marriage to this to this Cushite, and, and you know what I argue too is that you know this is not some minor backwater character. This is Moses, you know he's, <laughs> he's one of the major figures you know in the old testament he's and this is not at a time when he's disobedient like he was back in the early days okay when he flees he kills a guy and he flees he's not really seen as walking with the lord or following the lord in those early chapters of exodus but here now yes he speaks with with yahweh the god of israel face to face you know and so he's uh he has this incredibly close relationship with God and God has used him in a spectacular and mighty way. And so when he marries this black African and it's, it's and God supports that and speaks up, you know, and, and, and criticizes those who disagree with it. So I would argue that that's a big deal mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. the text to, uh, uh, to, uh, as far as this interracial marriage, God's very much in favor of this one. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's also presented in a way that it's it can't be dismissed as some kind of just minor minor backwater uh, defense. Uh, yeah. Later on, of course, there's prohibitions uh, against uh, intermarrying, but that's a that's a religious issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, God doesn't want the Israelites to intermarry uh, people of other faiths. And so that's that's strictly a uh, uh, because of different uh, theological views and theological positions that you don't want your kids going into paganism, you know, if you marry uh, someone. But uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's certainly uh, it's certainly allowed. They're specifically prohibited from marrying people inside the land of Canaan because mm-hmm. they don't want a, the Israelites establishing family relationships with the Canaanites who worship Baal and these other pagan gods, there's a theological threat. And I would say that's still true. You know, we're not, mm-hmm. some Christians need to marry other Christians. That's a, that's absolutely true, but there's nothing at all uh, 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 ethnic uh, prohibitions. And I would say in this case, Moses, God was very much in favor of. Yeah, well, and and that's such a a fascinating story, and yet one that's so often overlooked. 
I mean, just the idea that Moses had a wife who was a black African is something that I think would be very surprising, even to most Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, as we look at, uh, say, the wife of Joseph, Egyptian, you look at Moses marrying a Cushite, you, are, you look at Ruth, who's a Moabite, um, and then moving even to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, uh, you make an interesting uh maybe not full-throated argument, but at least in, in your work, you say, well, it's even possible that there's an, an undercurrent in Matthew chapter one of trying to uh, let Jewish people see that it's okay to marry a Gentile believer because that might've been seen as taboo for them uh, as Jewish people to marry outside of the faith. But of course, in Christ, uh, there's now one hu- new humanity. And so you you see even perhaps the uh, undertones of that in the genealogy of Matthew chapter one. Um, so Dr. Hayes, I think that was a, a great contribution of the work. And of course, that that again, as, as we come to this discussion, I think some of our listeners might be tempted to say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Uh, but I, I, I just want to, again, reiterate, interracial marriage was hugely controversial and in some quarters uh, still is, where people unfortunately have looked to the Bible rather than looking at that example or many others uh, as uh, a sign of the legitimacy of it. Unfortunately, many people have used even texts like saying unequally yoked to to say the opposite, uh, that that really, rather than looking at it from a, a standpoint of faithfulness to Christ as the litmus test, they unfortunately use race as a litmus test. So thank you for that. Um, and uh, feel free, of course, to, to jump in and add anything else you'd like yeah, to. Tim, let me just add a personal yeah. anecdote there of, of uh, a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, his son, you know, uh, of course, this is a white friend of mine. His son started dating an African-American woman and mm-hmm. and uh, they got pretty serious. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he'd, he'd grown up South Arkansas and had been taught, you know, both he and his wife that this was wrong. And so while they were trying to be supportive of their son, they were bothered uh, by mm-hmm. but in just sharing with him. And, and he's also a firm Bible-believing, you know, individual, trust in the Lord. And when mm-hmm. I could show him the view of the Scripture, that Scripture really affirms this and doesn't speak against it, then that helped relieve him of any kind of uh, wow. anxiety or opposition or, or anything. And to be wholeheartedly supportive, you know, of this of this particular marriage, and so for them it helped. It helped a lot, you know, peace in the family and full support. And of course, now they got wonderful grandkids and yeah. and, uh, and and all of that. But I think it's a helpful text to bring up and to discuss. And there's there's uh, you know, I think intermarriage is a positive thing. It helps it helps us to to bridge the gaps and to bring races together and uh, and so I, 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 I think it's something that this text really helps us move forward on that issue in the church. Yeah. Well, uh, as, as we come to this next question, of course, this is the, the kind of question I'm about to ask you that could uh, take hours or it could take seconds. Uh, but I'll, I'll leave it to you to figure out how, how uh, long you want to answer. But you follow the thread of God's redemptive plan for the nations and really not even just the nations. We're talking about clans, languages, territories, nations, all the way from Genesis 10 to Revelation 22. And and so I just want to invite you to do that. Can you help us to explain, uh, and I'll provide a little bit more context. So many people think of the Old Testament as almost an ethnocentric book uh, or collection of books, that it's only focused on the, the Hebrew people or the Israelite people. And yet, as you show in your work, that's just not true. There's so much more going on here than a focus on one people. So can you just trace that theme of the nations and what God is doing with the nations all the way uh, really through the entire text of Scripture? Yeah, sure, Tom. Okay, so, uh, (laughs) and some of this at the beginning is how does Genesis 11 relate with Genesis 10? Uh, Mm -hmm. And Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. And uh, I would argue that Genesis 11 occurs before Genesis 10, that the situation in Genesis 10 where you have all these nations scattered uh, is a result of what happened in 11. In Genesis 11, everybody speaks the same language and they're all uh, kind of united together and they want to make a name for themselves, you know, 
so God, God scatters them uh, and confuses their language. And I think that's the situation we see in Genesis 10, where they are describing all these different nations, 70 of them. There's a lot of symbolic uh, things going on in Genesis 10. But they repeat over and over. There's a couple of places in Genesis 10. Genesis 10, 5 says they're spread out. This is the NIV I'm reading. Into territories, clans, nations, each with their own language. And these four terms, uh, territories, uh, clans, nations, and languages, are repeated a couple of times for each of the groupings that are described in Genesis 10. Uh, So you see it again in verse 20. Uh, sons of Ham by their clans, languages, territories, and nations. And you see it again in 31. Uh, sons of Shem by clans, languages, territories, and nations. And so they're scattered, but there's all of these groupings, the uh, these four categories. Now, when God starts his great plan of salvation, and of course, these chapters in Genesis from 3 to 11 are uh, instances of you know, the human race is just not off to a good start. Uh, you know, uh, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit. Cain kills Abel. Things are so bad. God has to have a flood. Then the Tower of Babel, a defiance. And so the human race is not off to a good start at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're scattered because of that. But in Genesis 12, God starts his great, wonderful plan of deliverance. He starts with Abraham. And mm-hmm. as you have this introductory promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, several of these scattering terms are going to be mentioned and put in put into the promise. And so as he starts making his promise, he says uh, in Genesis 12, 1, you know, uh, leave your, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land. And here the land is mentioned that I will show you. Verse 2, I'll mm-hmm. make you into a great nation. So here's the term nation. But and then in verse 3, after he says, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Then he says, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is the same word, peoples, that had been used in those four, those groups in Genesis 10. So mm-hmm. there's an indication of 12, 1 to 3, that this great promise of Abraham has got a trajectory that involves, you know, all of the peoples uh, on the on the earth, mm-hmm. uh, on the land. And so... That promise, you know, to the to the nations continues as you move through the story uh, of the Old Testament. God is tracking, you know, the the Israelites are the main characters as He tracks the story. But you have all of these Gentiles along the way, uh, non-Israelites who are brought into the who are brought into the story and are saved. Uh, Rahab. Uh, comes in, Ruth, you know, comes in. And so you have these different people along the way brought, bringing, brought into the, into the people of God uh, as you move along. The prophets then, when they talk about the future, the prophets are going to paint this future picture when they say there's this time of restoration after this judgment for Israel's disobedience. But in the restoration that they'll be emerging that uh, that there'll be people streaming from Cush, they mention, and from Assyria, coming mm-hmm. to Jerusalem uh, to worship to worship God, and you have this picture uh, of them being being brought together. So, when we move into the the Book of Acts, then into the New Testament, pretty quickly it starts out with Israel, but pretty quickly it takes this Gentile turn. First of all, we have this. Uh, at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, mm-hmm. where the scattering of the language and confusing of the languages in Genesis eleven is reversed, where all of these people from different regions, and these are still Jews, but they're from all these different regions, speak these different languages, and now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God unites them; they can understand each other, and so we have overcome. We have reversed this scattering deal of Genesis eleven. And now, through the Holy Spirit, there is this huge unifying, crossing over cultures, language, everything kind of force uh, that can make things. And then as we move on through Acts, then we see that it's quickly becoming a Gentile story, that it's the Gentiles, the church center moves to Antioch. uh, And suddenly it's very much the Gentiles are now the center. There are still Jewish believers who are brought in, but they're no longer the mainstream 
storyline. The storyline is now the Gentiles. And Paul will explain it with Romans 11, with the grafted into the tree. The Gentiles are grafted into that tree. The roots are Abraham and the patriarchs. But now, and so the interesting trajectory on that, and of course, Paul is going to argue that there's no difference between Jew and a Gentile, that we're all in Christ, that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no difference uh, in us. And so that unity that we have because we're all in Christ across all kinds of ethnic lines is, is bringing all of these groups back together. And then at the end, in the climax, as you mentioned, we want to end up in Revelation, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know several times in Revelation, they pick up these same terms uh, uh, four times in Revelation. They'll pick up the same terms used in Genesis, the translated into the Greek Septuagint. Revelation will take those same four terms. They'll swap one term slightly, modify one of the references to land, to people, to add another stress moving from geographical to, to, to a, a people group kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and play down the ge geography, but they'll mention these same from every land, people, nation, tongue, you know, uh, that I would have had all four of those on the title of the book, but they wouldn't, there's not room, okay? They said you had <laughs> two, so I did people and nation. But all four of them are there throughout the book of Revelation, showing that at the end, at the climax of the story, you know, the culmination of this great story of redemption is that people from all these different nations and ethnic groups are going to be united together. Why? Because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we're all part of the people of God. And so it ends up with all of those different groups that had been scattered in yeah. chapter 10 are no longer scattered and they're no longer divided by those different categories. But now they're all united in Christ around the throne, worshiping the lamb, you know, uh, uh, as we get to the end of Revelation. So so there we go. It's Genesis to Revelation. Okay, we covered the whole the whole biblical story, but it is it it, it is a story that is wrapped around this concept yeah. that's there uh, of who's included, uh, and it is a story that we're part of, and we need to recognize that in our church today. Who who exactly are the people of God, and and who you know we are if we're in Christ, we're our brothers and sisters. You know we're kinfolk, and we're part of this wonderful trajectory and story of people who have been saved and to let let ethnic differences mess with that you know is uh, is uh, is an affront i think to the story and a, and a, and a serious misunderstanding yeah well it, it, thank you so much and as we think about genesis 2 revelation uh, it's so easy, I think, for people to dismiss the Old Testament because they think, well, this is a story about Jews, written by Jews, the, the Hebrew people, the people of God. Um, but it, it's it's so much more encompassing than that. And if we only pick up our story in the New Testament, then we're missing so much of what God is doing and preparing for. Uh, and, and so the Old Testament is, is necessary to understand our story as well. Our story doesn't start in Matthew chapter 1. Um, so it's also interesting in, in, of course, this is an academic work, uh, but something I just want to commend you for is that you take this, this research that you've done and, uh, and these insights that you've given to us, but you also point out very clearly that when it comes to racial unity, it, it's not enough to, to know. We have to be people who are willing to actively build communities that we see portrayed in scripture, to build the community, as you mentioned, that's portrayed around the throne, worshiping God, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And of course, this is something that, uh, I, I won't put your words in your mouth, but I'll just say, this is something that we have massively failed at as Christians uh, over the course of the, the history of, uh, of the church in the United States. Um, so. Let, let me just ask you, what are some ways, and of course, this is 20 years removed from your writing, but what are some ways that you would see uh, that we can practically seek to build communities that reflect the kingdom of God as we see it, especially in Revelation? Yeah, Tim, well, you know, it's a big question, but it is the practical, you know, it is the practical question. And, and mm -hmm. of course, you know, fundamentally as Christians in the Christian life, you know, there's this, there's two aspects of it. There's the vertical, you know, how we relate to God, what we believe about God. But then there's this horizontal, how mm -hmm. we relate to each other and what do we think of each other and how do we unite with each other. And, mm -hmm. and of course, the Bible's 
does both. The Bible stresses both. It's big on both. God, that's the message of the prophets. You, it's not just the vertical. You have to have the horizontal. You have to, the way that you treat people and the way that you interact with people uh, is hugely important to God. And we get that from the get-go. You know, the Ten Commandments, the first couple of ones, how you deal with God, the, the next six, how, how you yes, deal sir. with each other. And so God includes that from the get-go. And certainly uh, this carries over in to the New Testament. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Or the, what, the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is following the same, the same pattern. So it's important for us to realize that uh, Christian maturity, trying to walk with God as a mature Christian, how we view our fellow Christians and how we view people around us uh, is extremely important to God. And so living the living the, uh, the successful, victorious Christian life or whatever, seeking that, that we need to be aware of that and seek for that. So we want to know God. We want to know about God. But as we know God, we realize he's very concerned with how we relate. Uh, to each other. So in that sense, then, I think as we work off the Bible, the next step to get in our heads this concept that uh, uh, it's not just a matter of, of uh, if I'm speaking to a white church, okay, it's not just a matter of the white church saying, uh, okay, you guys can come, you know, join our church because we're supposed to do that. You know, God wants us to do that. Okay, we'll do that. Come on, you know, we're supposed to view as equal. Okay, we'll view as equal. Uh, that's not quite there yet uh, in the sense that, you no, know, what God wants from us is to see that uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are mm -hmm. in Christ together. And in Christ, there is no difference. There is no distinguishing difference. And so we need to celebrate that and have that concept. Uh, and part of that concept, of course, acceptance and view and, and, and uh, that intermarriage is related to that, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and the next thing I would say is that as, as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, and with these other statements, you know, bearing one another's burdens and concern and putting, you know, caring for your neighbor, all of these things, then this would lead us to just listen a little bit. Uh, and be try to be informed mm -hmm. about uh, what are some of the existing uh, issues and problems and concerns, mm -hmm. and and not assume that we necessarily understand everything about what's going on in other ethnic communities. And this is true whether you're in an area with African Americans or Hispanics or Asians or whatever. There's there's mm -hmm. all kinds of complicated situations, and so. I would say uh, advice, you know, number one, view everybody as your brother and sister. Seek mm -hmm. to get a biblical understanding. But uh, number two, listen uh, and try to understand their viewpoint and not just uh, dismiss it. Uh, uh, especially if you find yourself differing, you know, politically, then don't immediately just dismiss everything there because, hey, we got a political difference. But no, there's a large, you know, group of African-American evangelical Christians and Hispanic and Asian and these other groups who have the same high view of the Bible as we do. They have the same theology, all of this. And so so they also have something to say, and we can learn from them by listening, by listening to them. Uh, that I think, too, if uh, as a uh, just absolute welcoming each other, you know, into the church, of course, but also, you know, into your home and friendships, into all of these kinds of things. This is this is this is part of it, and this varies from you know, community to community and context to context. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly, we want our churches to be absolutely open to everybody and try to build multi-ethnic churches. This this is this is harder to do. Uh, simply because of, like, in for instance, in my small town here in Arkansas. Uh, we have several really good, mostly white churches. Okay, there they all of them have different ethnic groups in there. We have two colleges here, so. Uh, but then there are also some very good, healthy African American churches here too, and they're doing just fine. Uh, and so I think we're kidding ourselves if we're going to say all of a sudden, "Oh, hey, you guys are welcome. Come go to church with us." Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to say, 
you know, we don't really like your preaching or your music or, you know, and you can come here, you know, if you want, you know, and we would say the same thing, all the music, and you know, so, mm-hmm. so there are, it's almost like denominational differences. And so I, I don't think it's wrong to recognize that reality, uh, to celebrate that. Uh, oh, we had a tradition here in this town for a while where congregations would get together occasionally. I think that's great. Let's join together. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they would uh, they would meet at one church, but the pastor of the other church would come and preach. So the white congregations would hear an African-American pastor, the African-American congregations would hear a white pastor, and then we'd all get together for a fellowship. You know, yeah. you know we did that once a year. It's not a gigantic thing, uh, but it was helpful. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a statement. And people in the room li- looking around and listening to the preacher saying, you know, he says pretty much the same thing as my guy does. And, <laughs> uh, and so I think those kinds of things are, they may look small, but I think it's helpful in changing perceptions. Uh, and uh, it's helpful in breaking down, you know, barriers as far as even among, among Christians. Find mm-hmm. projects you can cooperate on. Uh, mm-hmm. In town, you can cooperate on social projects and church plants. You can cooperate on church planting projects. That's that's big down here with us mm-hmm. Southern Baptists and uh, in this area. Uh, you know, if if a church if a church is serious about trying to build a multi ethnic church at some point, you got to have a multi ethnic staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes that's a hurdle to get over, but that's just the reality, the reality of it. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, that whether that would work varies on your community, uh, from community to, to community. So so anyway, in general, just, uh, you know, my advice, uh, study the word of God. Let's build our views on firmly on the word of God. And as we get into it uh, and we realize that uh, God really wants us to be united together as the people of God. We're his children. He doesn't want his children squabbling. Uh, he wants us to love each other, respect each other, work on that respect. Uh, and in and, and that sense, then, as we see each other as family, uh, not just folks we tolerate, but folks we are related to, uh, then uh, and that we're going to sit around that kingdom of the, th- the throne of the Lamb and Revelation together. You know they're going to be on your left and right when you get to that point. So to celebrate that and uh, to move forward with that, I, th- I think that will help. You know I think that helps our churches move. Uh, and and this is true for any of the ethnic divides that we have. It's not just a black-white situation, but mm-hmm. we have large growing Hispanic communities. We have. Asian communities and 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 other ethnicities, especially in some of our larger cities, uh, as well. Yeah. Well, before before we sign off here, and I give you a final word, I'll just say that it, reflecting on your book, and I just want to encourage our, our listeners again: the book is from Every People and Nation: A Biblical Theology of Race. I encourage you to to buy it and read it. You'll be well served. Uh, as I've reflected on it. The the thoughts occurred to me that one of the reasons why God is so adamant uh, throughout Scripture uh, to use racial categories or racial examples, even something like the Good Samaritan, is because uh, I I think in his wisdom, he knows that race uh, is is not the kind of thing that you you solve in terms of racial unity. It's not something that's going to be ultimately solved until the, the kingdom comes but it's something that does reflect God's desire. Uh, and, and so for me, at least, Dr. Hayes, I think sometimes uh, there are people who have this, this holy grail mentality of, well, is there a time when we can stop talking about this issue? Or is there a time when we can kind of uh, relegate it to the past? Uh, and I think one of the reasons why the Bible talks about it so frequently is because this is gonna be a temptation for all of us. Uh, to have our own preferences, have our own desires, uh, to surround ourselves with people that look like us or think like us. And, and yet the, the biblical plan is, is so much more beautiful than that. And uh, that was one of the, the takeaways for me from, from your work. So thank you. Do you have any, any final word you'd like to say before we sign off? No, Tim, that's good. You said it well. Okay, summed it up. And I want to applaud you and the church and, you know, in your study, you guys for tackling this issue. And Again, I agree, recognizing it's part of human nature to group to yourself and see there's us and there's them and there's two groups, you know, 
And yeah. I think that's part of our old nature. Uh, mm-hmm. and it is something that we will constantly fight against. The church will constantly struggle with. And, yeah. uh, you know, the scripture presents that. It's an ongoing struggle uh, for all of us to become more and more like Christ. We never quite arrive there. Yeah. And this is one of the issues that I think is going to continue to be plaguing us. And we need to constantly work on it. So, yeah, we never quite arrive, you know, where we ought to quit work, work, working on these old attitudes. So. I would yeah. commend you on that. And, and Lord bless you in your work, okay, in your church and the podcast and uh, you guys pushing the Old Testament. Glad glad to glad to see that, okay? And, uh, you know, I tell people on the Old Testament, God talks a lot. He shows up. He talks a lot. He gives a lot of revelation. He intends for us to study that. If we yes. ignore it at our peril, you know, this is what God's voice, so we need to listen to that. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for taking the time to join us. Again, for our listeners, check out all of Dr. Hayes' work, but from every people and nation of biblical theology of race, get your hands on that and uh, and you'll be again well served. Dr. Hayes, thank you for taking the time and listeners, uh, as always, until next time, stay cool and stay old. We'll see you next time. Thank you.